This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee on day 18 of the 60-day legislative session, where the Senate has approved a bill protecting businesses from COVID liability lawsuits. What businesses need is certainty going forward. And that's the one thing this bill provides. It lets them know at the end of the day, they were there for us the last year. We've got to be there for them going forward. Democrats tried to change the bill. Republicans shot down every amendment. It passed 24 to 15. The governor presides over a roundtable discussion on COVID with some of the doctors who share his view that lockdowns are dangerous, and they all agree that the media really screwed the pooch. The media uh, has, has induced panic. Spreading fear is never a good idea in, uh, in, uh, when it comes to public health. What happened in the, the town square of today, which is social media, is that it wasn't just attack mode, it was also overt censorship. I mean, I'm astonished. I cannot understand how the fourth estate, which is such a valuable part of any democracy, could have um, participated in this way in this um, tragedy. The state reported 99 new fatalities and more than 5,000 new cases of COVID-19 on Thursday. The governor meets with officials from the paramutual industry to talk about a new gambling bill. Something will come up of it probably one way or another uh, within the next week or so. I think we'll know whether we have a path to have an agreement or whether or whether that agreement may remain elusive going forward. The Senate president says they may or may not be drafting the gambling bill this weekend. The Senate votes to close a loophole in state law that allowed a child molester to keep his name off the sex offender registry list by simply refusing to pay his court-ordered fine after doing his time. Because of this legal loophole, he could live right next to a community pool. If he so chose, or a school, or a daycare, he could be chatting with children online, and we would have absolutely no idea because he is living his life freely despite a history of preying on young children. A bill to limit the potency of medical marijuana sold in Florida passes a second committee in the House of Representatives. Our medical marijuana program is becoming a recreational drug use program operating under the guise of medical marijuana program. We'll also have your calendar of events and the story of a Florida man who used to serve in the legislature who is now accused of hiring a straw man to rig an election. But first, a word from the sponsors. You're listening to the Sunrise Podcast from Florida Politics, and we are much obliged. This public health crisis has shown our one-size-fits-all education system does not meet the needs of every child. Senate Bill 48 rethinks education and provides needed flexibility for students and families, giving students the tools and resources they need to unleash their potential. You can make a difference and improve our education system by visiting fledreform.com to tell your lawmaker to support SB 48. Paid for by Americans Prosperity Florida. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Friday, March 19th. This is National Poultry Day, Certified Nurses Day, and National Let's Laugh Day. On this date in 1917, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the eight-hour workday, but only for railroad employees. In 1987, American televangelist Jim Baker resigned after his secretary, Jessica Hahn, accused him of rape. And on this date in 2003, airstrikes by the American and British-led coalition signaled the beginning of the invasion of Iraq. The Department of Health reported almost 5,100 new cases of COVID Thursday and 99 new fatalities. Our death toll has reached 33,219. The total number of cases is just over 1,994,000. 
The Florida Senate approves a controversial bill protecting businesses from COVID liability lawsuits. Senator Jeff Brandis of St. Petersburg says we owe them for staying open and doing business during the pandemic. It's hard to imagine us going back in time in a year and, and then to, to today and realizing that two million people from our state have contracted COVID. 32,500 of our Floridians have passed away because of COVID. We have gone through and seen extraordinary things in the last year, extraordinary things. We have asked our nursing homes and our hospitals to power through this with trash bags and homemade masks and shower caps as PPE. We have for months considered a thermometer and in some cases still do consider a thermometer a COVID test, at least a crude one. But in nursing homes and ALFs across the state of Florida, that was all they had for months. We asked them to show up every day to make sure that the residents got taken care of, to bathe them, to feed them, and they did. And to my knowledge, no nursing home said no more. We're putting our residents on the street and we're walking away and closing the doors. They showed up every day. Our businesses that we considered essential, I don't know what an essential business is because I think all of our businesses are essential. They did incredible work. The bravery of people that just took, your, took the change at the, at the grocery store every day showed up. Incredible courage that people showed. And businesses did what they had to do to survive. They stood up. They showed up. The economy kept going. And here we are today. Lord is thriving. Our schools are reopened. The future looks bright. But it's because we've had incredible leadership. It's because we've made tough decisions. Because we have focused on the things that maximize our options during this uncertain time. But we know in business, what businesses need is certainty going forward. And that's the one thing this bill provides. It lets them know at the end of the day, they were there for us for the last year. We've got to be there for them going forward. Senator Gary Farmer of Broward says there's nothing wrong with protecting businesses that followed the rules, but he says this also protects the bad actors and basically throws nursing home residents under the proverbial bus. I'm looking around this room and I know every one of you has had a loved one in some relationship to you that's been in a nursing home. And I've said it every time I've debated this, most nursing homes do a phenomenal job. It has statistically been proven that about 20% of the nursing homes account for about 85% of the injuries uh, and, and, and deaths that occur in Florida. So we're talking about bad apples, like, and it, bad apples exist in every profession. Why are we protecting those bad apples? It, it truly makes no sense to me. But when these captive residents are totally dependent upon the care that we ask for and that they're being paid to provide, if they don't do the right thing, if they don't take reasonable care, they should be held responsible. This bill just goes too far. It potentially slams the courthouse doors to the most frail, vulnerable residents of this state. 
The final vote in the Senate was 24 to 15. The House has approved a similar bill, so now the two sides have to work out their differences. Florida lawmakers may roll the dice on gambling again, and this may be their best chance in more than a decade. Governor Ron DeSantis sat down with officials from the Paramutual Industry Thursday to talk about trying to pass a wide-ranging gambling deal that would revive the state's compact with the Seminole Tribe and could eventually allow the creation of a mega-casino in Miami Beach. The governor did not offer many specifics after the meeting was done. Yeah, so we had uh, basically a lot of folks who were who were in that in that industry. As you know, there's there's always discussion about uh, doing a, a compact with the Seminole uh, Indian Tribe, which uh, we're happy to engage in those negotiations. And, and I think we have a good relationship with the Seminoles. But ultimately, I don't represent the Seminoles. I represent Florida businesses and employees, and we want to make sure that those folks are able. Uh, to do well under whatever arrangement uh, may be reached between the state of Florida and the nation uh, uh, of the Seminole Indian tribe. So I think it was productive and I think we've, um, you know, we'll, we'll see what will comes up of that, but, but something will come up of it probably one way or another uh, with, within the next week or so. I think we'll know whether we have a path to have an agreement or whether, or whether that agreement may remain elusive going forward. Senate President Wilton Simpson says he's working on the plan, but he too is a bit vague on the details. We may or may not be drafting it this weekend, um, but you know, when I talked to the paramutuals, I told them to them generally in generalities that you know clearly the paramutuals and the tribe. We would certainly like to get a compact finish. We've we've lost almost seven hundred million dollars in state revenue, taxpayer revenue, and so we would certainly like to get that um, completed. And so we're going to work on that, and I give them generalities that if we do this, there's major concerns within the um, gaming bills, very, very specific details in, in several areas. And so I gave them a general highlight of, of what we're looking at. We're getting close with what I would say is the 100,000-foot level of an understanding, and then obviously the details would have to be filled in. So we should have, and the governor said it, I believe I saw something earlier saying that next week would probably be make or break. So I think we'll spend a lot of next week trying to go through those details. One of the key players driving the search for a gambling deal is a South Florida billionaire by the name of Jeffrey Sofer. He wants to transfer a gambling permit from his Big Easy Casino in Hollandale Beach to the Fountain Blue Resort in Miami Beach and turn it into a world-class resort casino. Does Simpson support the idea? Um, that'll also come out during the negotiations of the compact and negotiations of a paramutual bill. You know, we have met with almost anyone interested in gaming in the last two or three years, and we've something we've been working on for years. So it's something that um, is obviously a topic of discussion. But the realities are is we have committees that will have to vet that bill and make sure that um, we should do those things. So I'll weigh in once we get it once we get a deal negotiated then I'll weigh in and, and try to help get whatever it is across the line that we think is in the best interest of our taxpayer, the state of Florida. Sofer made large campaign contributions to both the House Speaker and the Senate President to help grease the skids on the gambling bill. A second committee in the Florida House approves a bill limiting the strength of medical marijuana. Representative Spencer Roach of Lee County is the sponsor of House Bill 1455 that says the amount of THC in marijuana buds would be limited to no more than 10 percent, which is far weaker than what you find in stores today. Roach says his objective is to make sure medical marijuana is not used for recreational purposes. This is a highly addictive Schedule One narcotic. Um, it's the only drug, to my knowledge, with the exception of the COVID vaccines that has not been approved by the FDA, including over-the-counter medications that you all buy uh, habitually. It's the one we know the least about, yet it's the one that people think should have zero regulations on it. I, I find that alarming. You know, we know this is a highly addictive substance. 
we know we have studies, many studies that show that high potency, frequent use of THC is associated with first episode and chronic psychosis. And even more alarming is, is what this does to the developing adolescent brain. Uh, we know that it's associated with impairments in attention, learning, memory, poor grades, high dropout rates, IQ reduction in our youth. Um, and finally, I, I would say this, you know, the, the medical marijuana program is still in its infancy in the state of Florida. Uh, and we've seen um, the patient population expand from about 1,500 people in 2016 now to, as you've heard, uh, over half a million, you know, four, almost five years later. I think it might be hyperbolic of me to say, to say that this is the case, but I think we're heading in the direction where um, our medical marijuana program is becoming a recreational drug use program operating under the guise of medical marijuana program. But Representative Carlos Guillermo Smith says the THC caps in Roach's bill will basically gut the medical marijuana program. This bill takes a wrecking ball to our medical cannabis legal program. I'm not trying to be overly dramatic. That's what it does. Let me connect the dots for you. If we're capping flour at 10%, we're banning flour. That's what we're doing. We're banning what Governor DeSantis signed into law as the first bill that he passed as governor. Now, how does banning flour impact this program? Well, inhalation is the supermajority of certifications for patients in this state's program. If we are banning THC at 10% or capping it at 10%, we're banning flour. If we're banning flour, which represents a supermajority of the certifications for patients in this state, we are severely restricting and cracking down on their access to this medicine with no, with no justification, none. Smith has sponsored a bill to legalize the use of marijuana for recreational purposes, but House leaders have refused to hear it. Roach's bill passed the Health Care Appropriations Subcommittee on a vote of 9-6. to six. One more committee stopped before it's ready for the House floor. The Florida Senate votes to close a loophole in state law that allowed a man convicted of molesting two young girls to stay off the sex offender registry by simply refusing to pay his fine for committing the crime. Senator Lauren Book sponsored the bill after learning about the case of Ray Lavelle James. Senate Bill 234 closes a massive and dangerous loophole in Florida law that has allowed at least one sex offender to avoid registration and sets a dangerous precedent for other predators seeking to avoid monitoring. Ray Lavelle James is someone you would not want living in your neighborhood. He was arrested in Tampa for molesting two little girls, 8 and 11, at a community swimming pool. For his crime, he was sentenced to 15 years in prison and ordered to pay a $10,000 fine. But very importantly, upon being released from prison in 2016, Ray Lavelle James did not pay his $10,000 fine, and he refused to register as a sex offender. After then being arrested and charged for failing to register, James began to fight his designation in court. And because of a technicality and a dangerous oversight in Florida's sex offender registry law, which could be widely exploited by other offenders, Mr. Lavelle James does not have to register as a sex offender until he pays his fine. Ray Lavelle James is not just a sex offender. He's a child predator who had a reputation for hanging around children, bringing toys to the pool, and inviting young girls to play with him. Both of the little girls at the center of this case testified that James put his hand in their bathing suits and molested them. This man is the very definition of someone who should and must be on the sex offender registry and subject to things like community monitoring and residency restrictions. But because of this legal loophole, he could live right next to a community pool. If he so chose, or a school, or a daycare, 
He could be chatting with children online, and we would have absolutely no idea because he is living his life freely despite a history of preying on young children. This is a huge public safety issue, which left unfixed will absolutely pave the way for other sex offenders to legally exploit the same loophole to avoid registration and the stipulations that come with it. Book's bill says sex offenders will now be listed in the registry whether they have paid their fines or not. Last year, some of the scientists who questioned the wisdom of lockdowns and school closings during the COVID crisis were ridiculed by their peers, and that criticism was amplified by the media. But Governor Ron DeSantis says they, like he, got it right. So the governor gathered four of them for a roundtable discussion and invited them to critique the media. How would you rate, um, you know, from a scientific perspective, how the media uh, has performed during this in terms of are they providing the information with context and perspective? Are they are they trying to be more more fantastical or hysterical in the in the coverage? Uh, and particularly, I think in those early days. Dr. Jay Bhutacharya is a professor of medicine at Stanford University, who says lockdowns are the biggest public health mistake we've ever made, and he says the media drove bad policy by scaring people. The media uh, has has induced panic, uh, but I mean, I have some sympathy because it's. Some, many scientists were also inducing panic, so they, maybe they were reflecting with the scientists. But some of the scientists tell them, what, what I'd recommend to the media is consult a much broader array of scientists when you're thinking about, what, what, about something like this. Um, panic induces, the, the panic that was induced has created its own harm. It's created a, a, a cycle of lockdown, a cycle of, 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 uh, of uh, not protecting the vulnerable. It's created... Uh, it's, it's actually harmed the health of the population in discrete ways. And um, it's going to be very difficult to undo. I mean, it's, it's, just to give you some sense of this, the, the media uh, has induced an environment where it's very difficult for even science, scientists just to do their work and say, uh, say things that go against the conventional narrative because for fear of facing uh, attacks, both by, induced again by the media on, on, on scientists themselves. I think... Uh, science only works when you have an environment where people can feel free to speak openly about what they're actually believing and thinking. And the panic has, has made the work of scientists considerably harder. Dr. Martin Kulldorff is a professor at the Harvard Med School. He's also the co-author of the Great Barrington Declaration that called for focused protection on the most vulnerable people instead of lockdowns. He says the media did a lot of damage. The media has some kind of a hurt thinking uh, that's taking place. And then those scientists who sort of go against the media has been uh, assaulted by the media uh, in, in a variety of ways, which makes it, uh, uh, which made that many scientists do not wish to speak up because they don't want to go through uh, all that, uh, that uh, nonsense. So I think uh, the media has not done a good job in terms of uh, understanding uh, um, the, whole, the whole pandemic and uh, there may have been a tendency to wanting to build up the fear because uh, for whatever reason, uh, similar to when there's uh, uh, some snow coming in the Northeast, the media will often sort of build up the, that this is going to be a big problem. And sometimes it's a big snowstorm, but sometimes it's just some flourish. So there might be a tendency for media to sort of build things up worse than it actually is in, in, in some ways. And uh, uh, spreading fear is never a good idea in, uh, in, uh, when it comes to public health. That goes against how we should deal with uh, uh, diseases. We should just provide the accurate uh, information uh, and neither overblow the problem nor dismiss the problem. 
Dr. Sinatra Gupta is an infectious disease epidemiologist at Oxford. She was also a co-author of the Great Barrington Declaration and says the media treated her unfairly. You know, it's been atrocious because, I mean, right from just how the deaths and cases are reported, um, every time there's a slight uptick in cases, it becomes headlines. No one's talking about the deaths having uh, going down, which they, um, at the moment, were in a very good position. Uh, so there's just been a willful distortion of just the basic data. And then when we talk about deaths, uh, here the deaths are counted as anyone with who's died within 28 days of being uh, having a positive coronavirus test. But even that is not good enough. The media will say, well, actually, it could be a lot higher, which is fine. Of course it could be, who knows? But they never say, oh, it could be also a lot lower. So there's absolutely no balance whatsoever. And as someone who's been personally attacked by the media uh, and um, whose views have been misrepresented, um, I, I, I feel, I mean, I'm astonished. I cannot understand how the fourth estate, which is such a valuable part of any democracy, could have um, participated in this way, in this um, tragedy. And then there's Dr. Scott Atlas, a controversial member of Donald Trump's coronavirus task force who was raked over the coals in November when he got on Twitter and called on Michigan to rise up against their governor's COVID-19 restrictions. As bad as the mainstream media may have been, Atlas says social media was worse. What happened in the, the town square of today, which is social media, is that it wasn't just attack mode, it was also overt censorship. I had my own YouTube videos when I had done an interview about schools opening, pulled down, uh, various tweets were censored. I think many of us have had that happen. And, you know, this is really harmful. I think we're, we're uh, sort of exposing some issues that, the, uh, that we weren't aware of, not just the power of the government to shut down everything, but also the power of the media to just overtly control what is even said. This is a great example, really, the pandemic of how the information has been suppressed. The media is hyperbolic. That's sort of their job. I would point out that the American media is different from the rest of the media. It's even worse. There's a study uh, in the economics literature it quantified how much uh, negative media was being produced about the pandemic. And in the English-speaking media outside the U.S., 53% of studies were negative about the pandemic. Inside the U.S., 90% of studies were negative about the pandemic. This is a very important thing to recognize. The media is reckless when they incite fear like that. There's a responsibility of the, of the media that really has been, I think, abandoned in this. After this roundtable discussion, Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Fried's unofficial campaign office issued a statement accusing the governor of continuing his political approach to the pandemic and said DeSantis must stop elevating dangerous disinformation. But when it comes to the media, a lot of what they said was spot on. Your calendar of events is next, along with the story of a Florida man who resigned in disgrace from the state legislature. And that was just the prelude to this story. But first, a word from the sponsors. In Florida, if you fall behind on court debt payments, the state takes away your driver's license. But if you can't drive, you can't work. So how can you make enough money to pay the debt? This policy makes no sense. Let's end debt-based license suspensions and help Florida get back to work. Welcome back to the Sunrise Calendar. First, the good news. The House and Senate had both been scheduled to hold floor sessions this morning. 
Both meetings have been canceled. The Revenue Estimating Conference meets at 8.30. The Medicaid Pharmaceutical and Therapeutics Committee meets at 8.30. Trustees at the University of Florida hold committee meetings at 9, followed by a full board meeting at 11.35. The Revenue Estimating Conference meets at 9. Trustees at Florida International University hold a workshop at 9. The South Florida Regional Planning Council and the Treasure Coast Regional Planning Council hold a joint meeting at 10. The Revenue Estimating Conference meets at 2 to talk about highway safety issues, and this is the final day to apply for a seat on the Public Service Commission. There's an opening now because Commissioner Julie Brown just left the PSC to run the Department of Business and Professional Regulation. Applications to the PSC Nominating Council are due by the end of the day. Finally today, a Florida man who used to be a state lawmaker is facing felony charges after being accused of paying a man to run as a spoiler in a state Senate race. Prosecutors say Frank Artilles offered Alex Pedro Rodriguez 50000 bucks to run as a third-party candidate to siphon votes from an incumbent with the same last name, Democrat Jose Javier Rodriguez. It worked. Senator Rodriguez lost by about 30 votes. Artilla spent more than six years in the legislature, but was forced to resign in 2017. Over drinks at the Governor's Club with two black senators, he called one of them a bitch and a girl. He referred to six Republican senators as niggers and called the Senate president a pussy. He made a public apology on the Senate floor and tried to ride it out. Then a few days later, the Miami Herald reported his political action committee, Veterans for Conservative Principles, had hired a former Hooters calendar girl and a Playboy model as political consultant. Right after that, Artilles resigned in disgrace. That's it for today's installment of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg, inviting you to join us again on Monday as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.